Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Edward Bruce White. Edward is the CEO of Combat Medical, a UK company and innovator within the Meditech sector. Edward, very warm welcome to you this afternoon and thank you ever so much for joining us on the programme. Thank you, Scott, for inviting me. It's a real pleasure having you on board with us, Edward. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to establish your take on leadership and leadership is something that I think it's fair to say is really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it, with the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and the need for business leaders, governments, etc., to feel their way through what ultimately is an unprecedented crisis. For somebody working within the Meditech industry, such as yourself, how has it been navigating the challenges that the pandemic has brought about? Because I can imagine that they have been tremendous. I mean, there are a number of challenges that have faced us, both in terms of commercial challenges and also family challenges, and also not forgetting the, the challenges of the, the families that we actually look after within our businesses that we're responsible for for managing as well as being able to deliver the service. So it's been very hard um, uh, to be able to balance out all these um, considerations when you're trying to make uh, the best business decisions, but also the right decisions for, um, you know, your business going forward. We're a young business, so we're developing and developing a new chemotherapy treatment um, for uh, various cancers. And so when you find that your business goes uh, from one day um, on an upward trajectory and everything's going brilliantly from the next day, even though we're in the business of saving lives um, and virtually all cancer treatments, certainly in the UK, almost stopped overnight. Um, you know, it is transformational, even if the business that you think is about actually, um, you know, working in the, the healthcare sector. Um, alongside. So the, the UK certainly has proven a very troubling, hard sector. And then going on to the people, you have to start going through and deciding how you as a business can survive and manage this, um, you know, slowdown and burn, uh, um, um, downturn. It's not just a question of sales, but, you know, all our clinical trials have been stopped as well because it's not a priority anymore. So really overnight, your business does really um, transform, even though we should be quite isolated from it. So it has formed a number of challenges for us. And do you think that some of these new ways of operating that have come in during the lockdown period will have to persist in the future? I mean, that's one of the, the, the positives that's come out of it, the way that everybody's actually come together. But uh, on a, just a business perspective, I think the way that people have moved uh, and worked and been able to move in different environments um, and um, certainly speaking for myself with, you know, a couple of young children having to, to manage uh, them and homeschooling, that's been a, a challenge, but it's all worked. Um, and the Internet certainly come to our rescue um, and going forward, I, I certainly believe that we won't be having people coming into the office as much. We've shown that we can get as much productivity. I would hasten to say most probably maybe even more productivity from some of our staff that are working um, at home and being more efficient. So there are certain very positive aspects that have come out of uh, the way that we're where this is all unraveled for us. And among those positive outcomes, is there anything that you have learned, would you say, during this period about the business, about the staff and how they've applied themselves? Um, 
it really is measured against different, um, you know, different priorities in terms of what people actually do. Um, but typically, um, somebody in a factory that's making something for us, they've had to come in to actually carry on making the medical products. That hasn't really changed, but other people have adapted and work from home. Um, and like I say, it's, it's incredible because it's very easy to track people's um, work outputs these days um, because everything's electronic online, so you can see when they're working or not. You get these reports um, almost in terms of actually what the output is. So you can see that people are really genuinely putting in the, the time and the effort. It's not just a question of uh, discussion. You do really miss, um, though, from time to time having the meetings there, various R&D projects which just have uh, frozen or clinical trial products because you simply need to get together to be able to explain um, very technical issues. Um, so I think on the, the type of more mundane and administration side that you can actually get away with um, um, a lot more remote um, working and become more effective. And even to a certain extent, we we train people how to use our, our medical products, and there's quite a technical aspect to it, training both nurse, uh, nurses and doctors. And, you know, we've been training, you know, nurses and doctors in South Africa and Australia, all over the world, and we've adapted and we've found ways of doing it. And, again, most probably not quite as good as being hands-on and showing somebody how something works in terms of the medical devices and connecting it, but it's been pretty effective. Um, and so, again, you know, I think there'll be – where there were five visits in a year to um, a hospital, for example, that was certainly reduced by you know at least two or three visits because you don't need to do all those now. So there has been a change, and that that is a genuine improvement that I think we can take away from this uh, experience. And of course, with that sort of common human interaction space being essentially something that we've been deprived of in many cases during this time there's been a renewed focus on the importance of mental health and well-being as we've adjusted to working under new conditions um from your point of view how important is mental health within leadership in business both in terms of looking after your own and that of your colleagues uh, i i think it's it's key um it, it helps i mean we're a small business so um it's quite hard, hard to get isolated um, because they're just regular calls uh, to people that are outside, even the people that are being furloughed. So, um, you know, in terms of actually just checking on, on them and what they're up to doing. So uh, there's a lot of connectivity. I can imagine in larger businesses that potentially do get isolated where you don't actually have uh, connectivity or, or equally potentially where you just, I, I know of um, other businesses where you literally go from almost one uh, um of a Zoom or Microsoft Teams meeting to the next, and your world has changed because you're just in constant meetings because everybody's connected. And that can actually be um, demotivating in terms of the way you work and trying to find that balance of how you actually work um, and then making sure you're connected and communicate. Good communication, I think, really helps solve uh, a lot of these issues because then you don't get isolated or you feel alone. And then that normally creates a healthy environment to work in. And communication from a leadership perspective is absolutely massive and it's taken a lot of business leaders to really keep the communication channels open during this time to keep providing reassurance to a lot of worried people amid all of the uncertainty. But when, of course, people below you as such can sort of look up to yourself for that little bit of reassurance, that little bit of inspiration, I suppose at the top of the tree within a business, it's a little bit different because there is really nobody above you to refer to. So in that situation, where do you draw sort of inspiration and hope from, as it were? Um, 
I mean, you have to look around, and I think there are some you know, fantastic and inspiring stories that are, are going on day to day in these extreme you know, circumstances we find ourselves in. So, you know, I'm constantly drawing on, on, on those. And, you know, in, in terms of, for me, I'm very lucky. I love exercise. So exercising, listening to, you know, news, po- positive news, podcasts, um, and actually inspiring and taking the opportunity because things have slowed down. So, you know, we're not able to sell as much product at the moment because they've stopped as, uh, you know, about 50% of their cancer treatments. And so during that time, trying to um, challenge myself to see how I can work better, more efficiently or help other people, I've certainly had to become more involved because um, uh, I'm in the office um, I'm still every day. Um, so I come into to our office because it, it's very close to where I actually live. So I'm the only person in the office, but because we don't have that, I've been looking after basic administration. And so you actually get to do a lot of other jobs and see how you can actually improve some of the the business aspects as well. Um, and that also then gives you connectivity to you know the, the you know the full range of staff in your office, including you know the more administrative basis tasks. So I think it's certainly made me come closer to it, um, and also given me some time to strategically think and try and develop how a plan we go through. And certainly, uh, I don't know uh, how many times, but we're continually um, um, updating our plan and monitoring how we're dealing with the situation because there is so much uncertainty um, because it's very hard to predict what's happening in the different markets. And there's so many different markets. In some markets, we have been unaffected. Um, Unsurprisingly, uh, Germany in the news has done incredibly well um, to be able to deal with this crisis and actually hasn't affected our sales in those countries, but in other countries that have. So we're constantly having to work and challenge how we can um, make ourselves better, how we can support our um, distributors and our partners to be able to provide all the product. Um, so it, it has been challenging, but I, I, I certainly I don't find any problem finding inspiration because there's so much inspiration around us. I mean, the NHS at the center of that um, and everybody coming together. So um, that's where I've drawn my, my power from in this, these hard times. And do you think that the experience of adjusting to this new reality and managing a, through a crisis is going to sort of galvanise combat medical going forward and make you stronger at the other side of this? Um, I think I think we've got to come through this and survive this as we're a, as a business. We're just reaching the, the scaling point. So it really comes at a, a bad time because it means that now um, – um, investment that we had in the company, which was going to be used purely on development projects and clinical trials, is now being used to actually help support uh, the business in part. So in, from from my perspective, it is a bit of a step backwards because we will have to look to, to be, be able to finance ourselves um, to be able to carry on all new projects, all these projects that we're about to start um, and fund them now. So, but in terms of actually how we... Um, you know, move forward after this and galvanize it. There's, you know, there's, like I said, the, the way we communicate, the way that we work, the number of trips that we do, um, you know, our sales team won't have to travel again quite as much. I certainly think that we'll see at least a, a 30 to 40% potential reduction in some travel. And so these are things that are all positive, you know, just from an efficiency perspective, but also from an environmental perspective. It really does question how you have to work in, in a business. Um, but fundamentally, at the end of it, we still have to do the hard yards in terms of um, proving, um, you know, our technology. And this has put a, a pause on it, albeit, you know, like I say, you know, we've been able to do it, 
do a remarkable amount of work. And it's, for example, podcasts with doctors and interactions. We've had, I mean, really large numbers of doctors um, and some of the type of world leaders in their field turn up to listen to podcasts or take on the podcast in terms of web um, presentations that we've done because people do have the time. Um, and that has been another advantage. I do think that um, people, when they haven't been in the middle of their, their crisis, that they have had time to be able to look back and reflect and also then um, um, research and, and work on new ideas. So that's uh, been a benefit to us. And thinking about what the future might hold now, Edward, just before we do wrap things up, what do you see for the next 12 months for yourself and for Combat Medical? And what do you really hope to achieve as we move through the pandemic and embrace the challenges of the new normal? Um, in terms of looking forward, I, I'm really looking, hoping to, that we get stability um, back into you know all the markets that people start returning. We're in the business of treating cancer patients, so it's pretty um, important that the hospitals are able to treat that. We are seeing green shoots already um, in terms of the number of patients that we're treated. We were down to about 25% of where we'd expect to be, and now we're um, already past 50%, and we can see month on month that that's going to increase, and we're returning to norm so it, it, it I think it's remarkable the resilience that everybody has and you can see that coming through um, and I would certainly hope that by the end of the year that we're pre um, covid levels in terms of actually what we're able to do um, in terms of treatment and so you can see that and then when you come back to it you'll be entering into a new world like I say with the improvements that we've made and you know you've had time to reflect and hone how we're going to work in terms of actually getting our, our clinical um, data into the market to be able to transform cancer treatments. So I, I think it has been a pause and a delay, but a pause and delay with reflection, um, which has enabled us to make us uh, stronger. We're very fortunate that you know we had a very efficient team, and you know I hope coming out the other side of this that we'll have 100% of the team still intact, which is something that I was trying to aim for. Um, as we came into this, it was a target, and because um, we really have a business that, is, you know, like I say, was at that takeoff point, and, and now what we're having to do is just tread water for a little longer in terms of coming forward, but the green shoots are, are returning, and like I say, they're happening you know, remarkably quickly, and um, so that's something for us to look forward to. Let's certainly hope that that upward trajectory does uh, continue in earnest, um, Edward, for sure. Um, I have to say, you know, it's been a real pleasure and a really insightful experience for myself having you join us on the uh, the programme this afternoon. And considering that we are out of time now, um, I think it would actually be fantastic just to have you back on the programme in a few months' time, just to see how things are getting on in that respect. Because it's one thing, of course, speculating about the future. And it's another, of course, taking the opportunity to look back and analyse exactly what has happened and catching up as to where things are at that'd be fantastic i'd love to i think it would be wonderful um, as well edward not just for myself but also from a listener's point of view i've certainly enjoyed our discussion there this afternoon and i thank you once again for your time and joining us on the program and most importantly until we do speak again um, in future which i'm sure we will do do take care and do stay safe with all still going on in the meantime because we're certainly not out of the woods with the covid19 situation yet that is for sure thanks very much scott 
That was Edward Bruce White speaking, the CEO of Combat Medical. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, Since retiring from his playing days, Sir Andrew has become the director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. However, during his career, he joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the ashes both at home and away in Australia. He is also the England skipper with the second highest number of test victories under his belt in history quite impressive and i hope that you enjoy listening just as much as jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with sir andrew all of that is coming up next hello and welcome i'm jonathan white and today we are joined by sir andrew strauss former captain of the england cricket team and former director of cricket at the ecb sir andrew thank you very much for joining us today Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And... um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost I'd been I was a Middlesex player I was Mm. captain of Middlesex all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later I've scored a test century which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test I mean it was literally the dream so and then suddenly I started thinking wow hold on potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails so it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that uh, I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think... In those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. 
in those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that. But perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after. Because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So... You know, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room for the, I think it was the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, (laughs) like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. (laughs) And I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it's it just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the ashes but also the day after you know that open top bus parade around london and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something, we're all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. for, for Absolutely, Everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch. Uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. 
No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch a trap bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later. Uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. 
And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job um okay so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the world cup on home soil in yes. 2019 uh i was firstly i was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in world cups and this includes my time as captain we just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move in fact we didn't have to move at times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt 
no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was I was actually, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers Um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so, numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death, there's no doubt about it. Well, I think the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got, the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the, uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a... a very inclusive, if you're thinking about, think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing 
prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. 
The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.